every question. Let's sing it again. Ready?
much choir. I hadn't heard that one in a long time. We used to sing that when uh, I think I used to sing that as a boy in the choir growing up at home. Jesus is all the world to me. Thank you all so much. Bless you. Take your Bible this morning and turn to Revelation chapter 2, please. Revelation chapter 2, as we continue our series called A Divine Wake-Up Call. It's the first part of a study that we're doing on the book of Revelation. We're taking the book and dividing it into sections. And we're looking at this first section, which will cover the first three chapters of the book. And while you're finding your place in Revelation chapter 2, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about it. Don't answer out loud, but think about this question. What is the greatest need in the church today? What is the greatest need in the church today? Some might answer, well, the people, the church needs more people. We need more people in the church. Others might, so, others might say, no, we need more money in the church. We have more money, we could do more. Some might say, no, we need better facilities. If we had better facilities, we'd be better off in the church. Others might say, we need more music and less preaching. Uh, don't nobody amen that, okay? Uh, but, but more music, or we need less preaching, or more outreach, or less outreach. I imagine if I asked ten different people... What is the greatest need in the church? I might just get ten different answers. But I think the old evangelist Vance Havner was correct in his answer. He said the church has no greater need today than to fall in love with Jesus all over again. The church has no greater need today than to fall in love with Jesus all over again. In fact, long before Vance Havner said it, the Lord Jesus himself said pretty much the same thing to a church in Revelation chapter 2. And if you found your place there, we'll begin reading in just a moment at verse number 1. This morning we're going to begin examining these specific messages. The Lord Jesus sent to seven first century churches located in Asia Minor, that is modern day Turkey. And as we study these Messages one by one, you're going to see they're very similar in their structure. They're very similar in the way that they're laid out as he addresses each church individually. Now, when it comes to applying what we're going to read here today, the application is really threefold. It goes in three different directions. First of all, the truth, the things that he's saying uh, is specific to the church at that time. The church he's writing to uh, there in Asia Minor. Likewise, the truth and what we're reading here is applicable to churches throughout church history who are like that church, including our church. And so the message is for us and for our church today. And then thirdly, the truth is for individual Christians as well. As you look at what's being talked about here, if it applies to your life, then it's, it's applicable and you should respond to it. Now, as you study Revelation, depending on who you read and, and what commentaries you use and whose books you look at and who you listen preaching to Revelation, some see these seven churches in chapters two and three. They see them as a chronological picture of church history. And they say, well, this church represents this period of church history and, and this period uh, is represented by this next church and then this church and then that church right down till today. And there are many people who hold that view, but I do not. In fact, I think it's going a bit too far. One of the reasons is because we find these types of churches 
all at the same time, all throughout church history. Not just one kind, but all these different types of churches all throughout church history. Now, if you think about the church this morning, and I find it interesting because we talked about the church in Sunday school. And I'm always thankful, I shouldn't be surprised, to see how God will tie things together. Even though I didn't go looking to see, well, we're going to talk about the church in Sunday school. But to see how God will bring about a Sunday school lesson and tie it and meld it together and weld it together in a uh, wonderful way. We talked about the church and how important the church is and being connected to the church. And I want to just make a couple observations about the church today before we begin looking at this first message. I want to say, and I want to be heard very, very clearly this morning. I just want to say this church is important. Church is important. In fact, it's far more important than a lot of people recognize and a lot of people will admit. John MacArthur said, by God's design, the church is the center of every believer's spiritual life. It's the center. He said it's where we study, feed, grow, train, correct, comfort, partake in the ordinances and minister the one another's. The church was given for our protection, instruction, discipline and equipping. It is lighthouse, greenhouse, hospital, classroom, and crucible. It is not an optional path among many, nor is it merely an aid to our spiritual life. It is central. And we need to understand that, beloved. The church is not just optional. It's not just something nice we want to do it. It is central to our believer's spiritual life. We need to recognize that. As I was reading, I couldn't help but share with you what Jeff Lassine said. He said some professing Christians claim they do not need to go to church. You ever met anybody like that? You invite him to church. I don't need to go to church. Oh, I love Jesus. I don't need to go to church. Jeff Lassine said, simply put, you cannot say yes to Jesus and no to the church. You can't do it. He said it was Jesus himself who established the church and who gave us the Acts 2 model for ministry. How you treat the church is how you treat Jesus. Because Jesus is the head of the church. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. I would add to the fact that you're mistreating his bride if you mistreat and think little of the church. And he said a sentence, and man, I thought I couldn't say it any better. He said, if your faith doesn't take you to church, you need to seriously consider whether it will take you to heaven. That's how important church is. That's how important. It's central. It's crucial to the believer's spiritual life. In fact, if you think the church is not important, then you disagree with Jesus. You know why? Because we find a picture where Jesus is in the midst of his churches. We've already studied it, but back up in Revelation chapter 1 and look at verses 12 and 13. John sees this vision of the glorified Lord Jesus. And it says in verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Now drop down to verse 20. We're told what this represents. Chapter one, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, Jesus says, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands, which you saw are the seven churches. So these seven lampstands with apparently in a circular uh, uh, pattern there, the Lord Jesus in the middle, they represent these seven churches. And in the midst of those seven churches, we find the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look at chapter two, verse one. 
to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So Jesus is not just in the midst of them. He's walking. He is ministering to them. The lampstands represent the seven churches. The stars represent the seven messengers or seven pastors of those churches. And the picture is he is Lord of the church. He is in charge of the church. He's the only one that can give a true appraisal of how the church is doing and what the church is like concerning its health. And may I say as well, thinking about the church, the local church is important. He's writing to seven local churches. And yes, we're a part of the universal church. All the body of believers. But he wants us to plug in and connect with a local body of believers to serve and minister and carry on his work and to be ministered to. And the Lord is the only one that can really say how a church is doing. We can look at our church and we can judge things by various means. A lot of people use the bees. They say a church is doing well based upon the bees. You know what the bees are, don't you? Buildings, budgets, and bottoms in the seats. And if they have a lot of buildings and a big budget, a lot of bottoms in the seats, then they're doing well. Some would even throw in and be spiritual about it and say they have a lot of baptisms. That had another beat to it. But what we're going to find as we study these seven churches is we cannot always judge by the outward appearance. Things are not always as they seem. We can look at a church and think that everything is wonderful and glorious and everything is as swell. But the Lord Jesus knows the truth. The Lord Jesus is going to be very frank with these churches. And we're going to find as we study there are things to commend. You're doing well in these things. There are things to condemn. You need to get right about these things. And there are things to correct. There are things you need to do differently. Now, what I want us to do in the next several weeks together, we'll take a break for friend day and and look at another passage. But as we begin looking at these seven churches, we're going to hold up that church today, the church of Ephesus. And we're going to hold Red Hill Baptist Church up next to it. As we look at the message that God gives to the church that we're studying, we're going to look at what he's saying to our church. We're going to see where do we fit in all this? Is our church like the church at Ephesus or we like Smyrna or we like Laodicea or is there a part of us that's like Ephesus, a part of us like Pergamon or whatever? And we're going to hold up this church because the application is there. He wrote to a specific church in the first century, but he's also speaking to us today. And I'm also going to say as we get started with this, I'm going to address us corporately. I'm going to say we this morning. But really, each one of us should look at our own lives and think about it in regards to me and I. Because churches are made up of what? People. And so we want to look at our own lives as well. Were you ready to look at the passage? We've set the stage. You ready to dive into it? Let's go in. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, Who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. So far, so good, right? But then we read verse four. Nevertheless, 
I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now we're holding up the church at Ephesus. We're holding up Red Hill Baptist Church. And we're looking at what the Lord Jesus says to Ephesus. We're looking how it applies to our church, looking how it applies to our life. We're going to do that with seven questions this morning. Number one, here's the first question. Do we work hard for the Lord Jesus? Do we work hard for the Lord Jesus? The Ephesians did. The Lord Jesus says, I know that no, there is perfect knowledge. He knew every in and every out, nothing hidden from his view. He says, I know with perfect knowledge, I know that you're a hardworking, laboring church. He mentions again in verse number three, they were a laboring church. And in that instance, the word means working hard. It means sweating. It means laboring. It means toiling. You might say, I know that you sweat for Jesus. I know that you're laboring. And he says, I know that you've labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. That's one thing to work hard, but not even become weary in it. This was a serving church. This was a laboring church. I wonder if their nominating committee has as much trouble as ours did and does. Uh, the fine workers. Or are there plenty of workers? People say, yes, I'll serve. So I know that you're a laboring church. I know that you're a serving church. And beloved, isn't it an encouragement to know that he knew that they served him? Think about that for a moment. Isn't that encouraging to know that he knows what we do for him? Now, you know, some of us, we labor for the Lord in a very public way. We're out front. People see us. People see us serving. But others, God has called them to labor behind the scenes, off the stage, in, in the shadows. And they labor there faithfully. And we're all gifted in various ways. And, and none of us should be puffed up because the Holy Spirit has gifted us and we're to serve the body. But maybe God has put you in a place where you think nobody knows what I do for Jesus. Maybe you serve behind the scenes and nobody ever says anything to you. I want you to know, something, beloved, there are a set of eyes watching you. The Lord Jesus Christ knows everything you do for him. And he sees it with a perfect knowledge. It's not hidden from him. And we learn from this that we should labor faithfully for our Savior like these believers did. So do we labor? Do we work hard for the Lord Jesus? That's question number one. Now, question number two. Do we persevere despite hardships, setbacks, and resistance? Do we persevere despite hardships, setbacks, and resistance? In verse number two there, he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience. In verse three, he says, and you have persevered and have patience. It's obvious that times have not always been easy for these believers at Ephesus. We know that the Bible says in this world we will have tribulation. In fact, being a Christian will sometimes bring on more tribulation. There are going to be hardships, setbacks, resistance. There may be times where you think about giving up. Going home. Throwing in the towel. Maybe you've never verbalized it, but in your own mind you thought, what's the use? I keep doing this and it seems like nothing changes and, and more hardship comes. And more resistance comes and more setbacks are thrown in. Let's be honest about it, beloved, this morning. 
living the Christian life is not always fun and easy. And we do it a disservice to people. We share the gospel and we share it. So listen, if you come to Jesus, he'll not only give you a forgiveness of your sin. He'll make the path rosy and sunny all your life. That's not what the Bible says. In this world, you shall have tribulation. He's not promised us smooth sailing, but he's promised us a safe landing. And he's promised to be with us during those days. And they had to have patience and persevere. And there are hardships and there are setbacks and there are problems. And there is resistance within and without. There are those within that would resist us. There are those without as we seek to serve and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But despite any of what went on there, these believers kept on keeping on for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the question. Do we do we keep on keeping on for the Lord Jesus Christ? Question number one, do we work hard for the Lord Jesus? Number two, do we persevere despite hardships, setbacks and resistance? Now, you ready for number three? It's an important one. Do we practice holiness in life and relationships? Do we practice holiness in life and relationships? Look back at verse two. It says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are what? Who are evil. You can't put up with those who are evil. Look at verse number six. The Lord Jesus says, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. By the way, we don't know exactly who the Nicolaitans were, but we know one thing. Their deeds were evil and Jesus hated their deeds. Not them. Note, note it. But he hated their deeds, what they were doing wrong. And so did the believers at Ephesus. These believers, it appears, cared about holiness. They cared about holiness. They would not put up with those who did not care about holiness. I think it's safe to say that these believers in Ephesus practice church discipline. They did not want that lack of holiness and that evil to abound in the lives of their fellowship and in their church. They believed in purity when it came to their life and relationships. They were a pure, holy people. I believe as we read here, you can't even bear those who are evil. Now, I want to ask a question this morning. I wonder what has happened to holiness. What has happened to holiness? Why is it that so many professing Christians are no different from the world? They're no different from the unsaved people. They live the same, act the same, talk the same. The Bible says, beloved, that if any man or woman be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, but all things have become new. And we should not be just like the world. We should be living lives of holiness and lives of purity and separating from that which dishonors the name of Jesus. And of course, that means there's some places we're not going to go. And there's some people we're not going to hang out with. There's some things we're not going to do. Because of our love for Jesus, not because we're better than they are, but because we're believers and because Christ has saved us. And yes, we want to pray for those folks We want to reach them, we want to love them, but not be just like them. Not practice their evil deeds. Do we practice holiness in life and relationships? Do we value holiness here? These believers did. We've got to keep going. There's a lot to cover here. Number four. Do we know our Bibles well enough to practice discernment? Do we know our Bibles well enough to practice discernment? I think it's safe to say that these believers in Ephesus knew their Bible. Now, they didn't have personal copies like you and I have. You know how blessed we are to have that Bible in your lap and I have this Bible in my hand. I got a lot of Bibles. I got Bibles I've used, Bibles on the shelf. We've got Bibles everywhere. 
to think that there are those today who don't even have one copy of the Scripture in their own language. We're blessed. Now, they didn't have a personal copy, no doubt, but they, and they still knew the Scripture. Look at verse 2 again. I know your works, your labor, your patience. You cannot bear those who are evil. Now, watch the next part. And you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not. And have found them to be what? Liars. There were those who came to the church at Ephesus and they said, I'm an apostle. And I'm speaking for the Lord. But in reality, they were liars. They were false teachers. And the believers at Ephesus, they were discerning enough and knew the scripture enough to say and test these people and show that they were indeed not apostles. They were instead imposters. You see, they didn't just let anybody in their pulpit. I've emphasized to our leaders here, and I'll do it again publicly here this morning to every person at Red Hill Baptist Church. We've got to be super careful as to whom we allow to step foot in this place, in this pulpit, in our Sunday school classes. We must be careful as to who we allow to teach and preach and reach our people because there are wolves about in sheep's clothing. We need to be discerning. And make sure that whoever preaches here, whoever teaches here, whoever addresses our groups, no matter what group it is, no matter where it is that we go, even if we go to hear them, to make sure that they love and serve and preach the Word of God. We've got to be careful about that. False teachers abound. And when they come, we need to know our Bibles well enough. We can put them to the test and deny entrance to those who are liars. Deny entry. Say, oh, that's so harsh. No, it's biblical, beloved. We'd be foolish to allow just anybody to come in and speak or teach or or preach here. You wouldn't allow just anybody access to your child, would you? You don't just ride down the street and say, hey, would you mind babysitting my kid for the next two hours? You'd be foolish to do that, wouldn't you? How dare we bring in someone to reach babes in Christ and lead them astray? I found it only takes one time, by the way. Only takes one time sometimes to lead someone astray. Now, let's just be honest about it. As we look at this church in Ephesus, in so many ways, it's a great church. I mean, any pastor would be happy to be called to this church. I mean, here's a church. They're working hard. They're persevering. They're discerning. They knew their Bibles. They believed in holiness. Sign me up. You were looking for a church home in that area. You say, hey, we need to go check out the church at Ephesus. It'd be a great church to put our family in. It'd be a church I think you'd be excited about joining. It'd be a, a church you'd be excited about inviting other people to come with, to church with you. By the way, if you're not excited about inviting people to church with you, something's wrong. Something's wrong with the church or you, or maybe both. We need to be uh, excited about what God has given to us. But here's the thing. It looks so wonderful. We're just amazed at how great they are. But the Lord Jesus is not through with his assessment. He's mentioned the good things. You know, when you get those work reviews and they they sit down with you and they begin working through and saying, well, you've done this well, you've done that well. And you're like, but then there might come the word nevertheless or the word but. And here in this passage in verse four, there's a word that changes everything. That very first word in verse four, nevertheless, all that I've said is good. All that we've talked about is wonderful. But the Lord Jesus, with his seeing eyes, his all seeing eyes, has spotted a deficiency. It's a major deficiency. He said in verse four, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Brings us to our fifth question. That's this. 
Do we love Jesus first of all and above all? Do we love Jesus first of all and above all? Jesus said, I have this against you. Now, this is the one whom they served. They worked hard for him. They persevered for him, took a stand for him, preached for him, lived for him. And it's the very one who says, listen, I've got something against you. Imagine receiving a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ addressed to your specific church. Imagine, you know, we think about what's the worst letter you can get? IRS audit. Hey, nobody wants one of those, do they? We're getting a lot of it right now, aren't we? All these political advertisements. Man, that's bad stuff, isn't it? But imagine the Lord Jesus sends a letter addressed to Red Hill Baptist Church. He says, you've done well here, you've done well there. And you're reading down through, you're thinking, but then you read that word, nevertheless, I have this against you. That's what he said to the believers at Ephesus. Now, what is it? It says they had left their first love. They left it. Now, here's the question. What is first love? Well, real simple. It's the love they had for the Lord Jesus at the very beginning. The first love they had for him, that kind of love. And it says there that they had left it, not lost it, by the way. They didn't lose their love, they left it. It was no doubt a gradual thing. They didn't wake up one morning and say, listen, I think we should stop loving the Lord Jesus like we used to today. They didn't call a business session and say, all right, here's what's on the docket this morning. We're going to put to the vote for us to leave our first love. No, I think it happened gradually. Week in and week out, day in and day out. Someone will label this church the loveless church. Maybe your Bible has above the paragraph, the loveless church. Mine does. I don't think they had lost. I don't think it was loveless. I don't think they lost all their love for the Lord. They still loved Jesus, but not as much as they had before. They no longer loved him first, first of all and above all. Maybe it was their busyness in serving. You know, that you get busy serving. Maybe it was the time they spent examining these false apostles that came in and they just got focused on that. Perhaps it started during those days, maybe persecution or hardship or setbacks or resistance. And they began to wane a little bit in their love. You see, they were busy for Jesus, but they were not in love with Jesus as they should be. That they went through the motions, but had no emotion. As someone pointed out that Jesus had their hands, but not their heart. They had left their first love. You see, their motive for all the good things they were doing, it was not love for the Lord. It might have been habit, tradition, duty, something else, but not love. I mean, they were persevering. They were discerning. They were preaching, teaching, reaching. They were working, but not out of a heart of love. You know the passage as well as I do. Though I speak with the tongues of men, but have not love, I've become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have all faith so I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. It's not enough just to be biblically discerning. It's not enough just to know your Bible. It's not enough just to serve. Not enough just to be a great church in those regards. If we do not love Jesus... And here's the question. What about us? Do we love Jesus as much as we did at the first? Do we love him more than we used to? Is it possible that we have left our first love? You say, well, look around. So many things are going great. I didn't ask that. I said, we left our first love. 
the Lord Jesus. Which brings us to that sixth question is this. Do we understand just how serious all of this is? Do we understand just how serious all of this is? You see, Jesus didn't just diagnose the problem. He also provided the remedy. But it was serious business. In fact, so serious. Look at verse five. He says midway through that verse. If you don't do these things, I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Remember, there's a picture there. The lampstand representing the church at Ephesus was one of the seven. Jesus said, if you don't get things right, if you don't correct things, I'm going to come and take the lampstand and remove it out of its place. They had spiritual heart disease. Outwardly, everything looked great. But inside, things were not right. And he gave them a prescription for the spiritual heart disease. Three R's, if you will. First of all, remember. Remember, see it there in verse number five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember what? Remember the way you used to love Jesus. Remember the way things used to be. Remember at the very beginning. Remember how excited you were the day you got saved. How excited you were to serve. How excited you were to come. How excited you were to pray, to listen to the word of God, to to go to preaching, to go to a revival meeting. Remember how things used to be. Remember how far you've fallen. Then he says, what next? Repent. In fact, he says it twice. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Then the end, he says, I'll remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What's repent? It's a change of mind. It leads to a change of direction, change of life. You're going in one direction, you turn around and go the other direction. We're to turn back from the sin and turn back to a loving fellowship with him. Repentance. We don't hear much about that today, do we? But we need to repent, change our mind, agree with him, turn from our wicked ways, return to him. And then we would add this third R, repeat, repeat. Where do we find out in the past? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and watch. Here's repeat and do the first works. Repeat the first works. Do them over again. What are the first works? By the way, that word first for first love and word for first first works. Same word, the Greek. It's the idea of returning to the basics, the first works. How did you grow in your relationship with the Lord? How did you grow in your fellowship? Basic things, wasn't it? Reading your Bible, studying the word of God, spending time in prayer, going to church, witnessing those simple things. We like to make things complicated, don't we? We're masters at complication. Aren't we? And complexity. Let's add you know, 18 steps to this. Listen, just go back to the first works. Fall in love with Jesus all over again. Get into your Bible. Begin to read it and digest it and study it. Get on your knees in prayer. Get into the church and begin to learn and grow and serve. And then go out and share your faith like you used to. Real simple. Remember, repent, repeat. If not, there'd be a fourth R, which was removal. He would take away their lampstand. Now, listen, that's not a loss of salvation. That's impossible. If you're truly born again, you have eternal life. Okay, not the loss of salvation, but it would be for this church, a loss of light, a loss of their testimony, a loss of their witness, a loss of their impact. As one old preacher said, it with Ephesus is revival or removal. In other words, they might still meet the next Sunday. But there would be no power. You see, the lampstand is not the light. It just bears the light. The lampstand needs the one who's in the midst to provide the light and provide the oil and to administer and to give the power to do the work. 
You see, beloved, we can meet and greet and shout and sing and preach and pray and go through all the motions here. But if the Lord doesn't work, if the Lord is not in it, we might as well close up, shut down, sell the place and go about our lives without Jesus. How many places met this morning in our meeting right now and they have no light? Think about it. They have no light. They're going through the motions. They've got it all down, but there's no light, no power, no life. The Holy Spirit is not filling them and working, as we talked about this morning in Sunday school. Beloved, we need to fall in love with Jesus all over again. I can't emphasize that enough. And I think our final question will help us on the journey. And that's this. Do we understand just how blessed we really are in Jesus? Do we understand just how blessed we really are in Jesus? I know we're over. Listen to this last part. You you don't want to miss this. God wants us to hear and heed his word. Look at verse 7. This is pretty awesome. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, here's the question. He's talking to an overcomer. Who is the overcomer? Is it a super saint? Is it a guy with a cape with a Bible on it who's super Christian? Is it someone who's arrived in the Christian life? No. In fact, John gave us the answer. If you'd like to write in your Bible out by that verse 7, you might want to put this reference. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. And I'll, give, I'll read it for you. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. He says in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, these words, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? Who is this overcomer? It says, but he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Listen, if you're a believer this morning, the Bible says you are an overcomer. You're an overcomer. Now, now don't don't close up shop yet, because did you see what's in store for us as overcomers? Look at what he says in the next part of that verse seven. To him who overcomes, so him or, or, or she or he, the believer who overcomes, every believer is an overcomer if you're truly born again. He says, I will give to eat from what? The tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, we've heard about this tree of life before, haven't we? The tree of life we read about, first of all, in the book of Genesis. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, excuse me, Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. It says, and out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So in the midst of the garden of Eden, there's this tree of life that's growing there. Now, man sins. He disobeys God and eats the forbidden fruit. Genesis 3, 23, 24 says this. And the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the, you remember what it says? The tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way. So he put man out of the garden of Eden. You're no longer going to live here. He went out to till and worked the ground under the curse. But he put that cherubim there with this flame in every direction, this sword. But here's what's interesting. It says a flaming sword is turned every way to guard the way. It doesn't say not to the Garden of Eden, but to guard the way to the tree of life. God in his gracious mercy did not want man living in sin. 
who fall in his sin to take of that fruit, the tree of life, and live forever. So he blocked it from him. Now here's what's interesting. He just said in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, to those who overcome the believers, you're going to eat of the tree of life. In fact, in Revelation 22, verse 2, here's what the Bible says. In the middle of its street, come at the New Jerusalem, in the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And in Revelation twenty-two fourteen, it says, Blessed are those who do his commandments. They may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Beloved, once man was forbidden to take that tree of life, but now to those who have believed, those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those overcomers, they now have the right and we will eat from the tree of life. Now, here's what I want to get at. God has blessed us in so many ways. This is just one of them. How can we help but love him? How can we help but fall in love with him all over again? Because Jesus made a way for us to be placed into a right relationship with the Holy God. Now, let me ask you two questions and we're done. Number one, do you know him as your Lord and Savior? Maybe the reason you don't love him because you don't know it. You can't love him. The Bible says all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So if you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus, he will save you. He will make you a child of God. Question number two. If you're already saved and you're sure of that, I want you to be real honest with you. I want you to be real honest with yourself. Do you still have that first love? Do you still have that first love? If not, the Bible's clear. This is not Rodney. This is not the Baptist. This is this is the Bible. Here's what you need to do. Remember. Repent and repeat the first works. Just come back to the basics. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent. Turn from your wicked ways and repeat. Do the first works and fall in love with the Lord Jesus all over again. Father, it is with a grateful heart. We bow in your holy presence again. Would you help us, Father, to be real honest with you today? Holy Spirit, have your will and way in this place. Set aside any distractions, any hindrances. If anybody here does not know for certain they're born again, I pray your Holy Spirit will convict them and bring them to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then, Lord, for those of us who are certain of that, would you help us to allow the Holy Spirit to examine our lives today? And to honestly answer this question, have we left our first love? Lord, I pray that as a church, we would never get to the point where we're just going through the motions. Where we're just doing the Lord's work without loving the Lord of the work. It's so easy, Lord, to get our eyes on other things. It's so easy to gradually, week in and week out, walk, walk away from our love for you. So, Lord, I pray that if that's the case in any life of any believer today, they would take this, these steps to remember from where they've fallen and then to repent and repeat those first works, to get back to the basics, <coughs> getting to know you and falling in love with you all over again. 
Bless this invitation, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is 473. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. If you need to be saved today, I'll be right down front. Just come and let me know that. We'll share the gospel with you and help you in that regard. But this message was primarily for believers. Maybe God has spoken to your heart today. Maybe your love for him is not what it ought to be. Why don't you take that step today of repentance and begin that journey of repeating those first works? Let's stand and sing. You come as God leads you. More love to the old Christ.